European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 44, Issue 42. Focus Issue, Epidemiology, Prevention and Healthcare Policies, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Game Changer Epidemiological Studies. This focus issue on epidemiology, prevention and healthcare policies contains the fast-track clinical research paper Significance of Lipids, Lipoproteins and Apolipoproteins during the first 14 to 16 months of life by Sophie Taugobin Nielsen and colleagues from the Copenhagen University Hospital Rigshospitalet in Denmark. Primordial prevention of cardiovascular diseases, or CVDs, is generating growing interest. In this contribution, the authors investigated lipid parameters during the first 14 to 16 months of life to identify influential factors and to test whether high concentrations at birth predict high concentrations at 2 and 14 to 16 months. The Copenhagen Baby Heart Study included 13,354 umbilical cord blood samples and parallel venous blood samples from children and parents at birth, N equaling 444, 2 months, N equaling 364, and 14 to 16 months, N equaling 168, were used. Concentrations of lipids, lipoproteins, and apolipoproteins in umbilical cord blood samples correlated highly with venous blood samples from newborns. Concentrations of LDL cholesterol, or LDLC, non-HDLC, apolipoprotein B, and lipoprotein A increased stepwise from birth to 2 months to 14 to 16 months. Linear mixed models showed that concentrations of LDLC, non-HDLC, and lipoprotein A above the 80th percentile at birth were associated with significantly higher concentrations at 2 and 14 to 16 months. Finally, lipid concentrations differ according to sex, gestational age, birth weight, breastfeeding, and parental lipid concentrations. The authors conclude that lipid parameters changed during the first 14 to 16 months of life, and sex, gestational age, birth weight, breastfeeding, and high parental concentrations influenced concentrations. Children with high concentrations of atherogenic lipid traits at birth have higher concentrations at 2 and 14 to 16 months. These findings may help in deciding the optimal age for universal familial hypercholesterolemia screening. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Kirsten Holven from the University of Oslo in Norway. Holven notes that the association between maternal and infant cholesterol is often attributed to lifestyle, although genetic factors may also play a contributing role. Detecting children with high lipid levels and intervening with lifestyle counselling, e.g. focus on diet low in saturated fat, adequate physical activity and maintaining normal weight, in early childhood may therefore have the potential to favourably impact lifetime CVD risk and favour initiation of a therapeutic intervention at an earlier stage in life. Incident CVD risk depends on cumulative prior exposure to LDLC and the time course of the area under the LDLC curve. 
Early intervention, starting in childhood, is the best way to reduce the cumulative LDLC burden and subsequently lifetime risk. Atrial fibrillation, or AF, is the most frequent arrhythmia, in particular in the elderly, and is an important target of clinical research. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Temporal Trends of Core-Specific Mortality After Diagnosis of Atrial Fibrillation, Dan Hua Wu and colleagues from the Queen Mary University of London in the United Kingdom investigated mortality and hospitalisation rates following AF diagnosis over time, by cause, and by patient features. Individuals aged greater than or equal to 16 years with the first diagnosis of AF were identified from the UK Clinical Practice Research DataLink Gold dataset from the 1st of January 2001 to the 31st of December 2017. The primary outcomes were all-cause and cause-specific mortality and hospitalisation at one year following diagnosis. Poisson regression was used to calculate rate ratios, or RRs, for mortality and incident RRs, or IRRs, for hospitalisation comparing 2001 stroke 2002 and 2016 stroke 2017, adjusted for age, sex, region, socioeconomic status and 18 comorbidities. Of 72,412 participants, mean age was 76 years and 62% had greater than or equal to three comorbidities. All-cause mortality significantly declined, RR 2016-2017 stroke versus 2001-2002, stroke 0.72, with large declines for cardiovascular, or CV, RR 0.46 and cerebrovascular RR 0.41 mortality, but not for non-cardio stroke cerebrovascular causes of death, RR 0.91. In 2016 stroke 2017, deaths caused by dementia at 8% outstripped deaths from acute myocardial infarction, heart failure or HF, and acute stroke combined, 6.7%, P being less than 0.001. Overall, hospitalisation rates significantly increased, IRR 2016 stroke 2017 versus 2001 stroke 2002, 1.17, especially for non-cardio stroke cerebrovascular causes, IRR 1.42. Older, more deprived and hospital-diagnosed AF patients experienced higher event rates. Wurwittau conclude that after AF diagnosis, cardio-stroke-cerebrovascular mortality and hospitalisation has declined, while hospitalisation for non-cardio-stroke-cerebrovascular disease has increased. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Pascal Mayer from the University Hospital Basel in Switzerland and David Conan from McMaster's University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. The authors conclude that this important study by Wu et al. provides new and relevant insights into the death and hospital admission rates in patients newly diagnosed with AF in the UK from 2001-2002 to 2016-2017. stroke While this study underscores the benefits achieved on the CV side, 
These data also suggest an increasing role for non-CVDs, particularly neurodegenerative diseases, in this patient population. A lot more work needs to be done to further improve the outcomes of this vulnerable patient population. Frailty is an emerging risk factor. There is little information on the incremental prognostic importance of frailty beyond conventional prognostic variables in HF populations from different country income levels. In a fast-track Congress article entitled Frailty and Outcomes in Heart Failure Patients from High, Middle and Low Income Countries Daryl Leong and colleagues from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada explore this matter. A total of 3,429 adults with HF, mean age 61 years, 33% women, from 27 high, middle and low-income countries were prospectively studied. Baseline frailty was evaluated by the FREED Index, incorporating hand grip strength, gait speed, physical activity, unintended weight loss and self-reported exhaustion. Mean left ventricular ejection fraction was 39 plus or minus 14% and 26% had New York Heart Association Class 3 stroke 4 symptoms. Participants were followed for a median of 3.1 years. Cox proportional hazard models for death and HF hospitalization, adjusted for country income level, age, sex, education, HF etiology, left ventricular ejection fraction, diabetes, tobacco and alcohol use, New York Heart Association functional class, HF medication use, blood pressure, or BP, together with hemoglobin, sodium, and creatinine concentrations were obtained. The incremental discriminatory value of frailty over and above the magic risk score was evaluated by the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. At baseline, 18% of participants were robust, 61% were pre-frail and 21% frail. During follow-up, 16% of participants died and 14% were hospitalized for HF. Respective adjusted hazard ratios, or AHRs, for death among the pre-frail and frail were 1.59 and 2.92 respectively. The respective AHRs for HF hospitalization or 1.32, 0.93 to 1.87, and 1.97, 1.33 to 2.91. Findings were consistent among different country income levels and by most subgroups. Adding frailty to the magic risk score improved the discrimination of future death and HF hospitalization. Leong and colleagues conclude that frailty confers substantial incremental prognostic information to prognostic variables for predicting death and HF hospitalization. The relationship between frailty and these outcomes is consistent across countries at all income levels. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Finley McAllister from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. McAllister ends his contribution on a positive note and acknowledges that while the proportion of HF patients who are frail has increased over time, the magnitude of the increase has been smaller than the marked increases seen in the proportion of HF patients with multiple comorbidities over the same time frame. 
This undoubtedly reflects improvements over the past two decades in care for HF and for many of the concomitant comorbidities with which HF patients are burdened. Regardless as clinicians, we must continue to work towards ensuring that frail patients with HF receive the best possible care. To help achieve this goal, clinical trialists should expand eligibility criteria to include a wider range of frail patients in future HF randomized clinical trials and collect data on changes in frailty manifestations over time, as well as cardiac outcomes, to establish a more robust evidence base. Moreover, those responsible for the dissemination and uptake of guidelines should draw attention to the higher risk and the larger treatment gaps faced by HF patients who are also frail. Effervescent formulations of paracetamol containing sodium bicarbonate have been reported to be associated with increased BP and a higher risk of CVD and all-cause mortality. In a clinical research article entitled Sodium-Based Paracetamol Impact on Blood Pressure, Cardiovascular Events and All-Cause Mortality Shishir Rao and colleagues from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom indicated that given the major implications of these findings they re-examined the reported associations. Using linked electronic health records data a cohort of approximately 475,000 UK individuals with at least one prescription of paracetamol, aged between 60 and 90 years, was identified. Outcomes in patients taking sodium-based paracetamol were comparable with those taking non-sodium-based formulations. Using a deep learning approach, associations with systolic BP major CV events, myocardial infarction, HF and stroke, and all-cause mortality within one year after baseline were investigated. A total of 460,980 and 14,462 patients were identified for the non-sodium-based and sodium-based paracetamol exposure groups, respectively. Analysis revealed no difference in systolic BP and no association with major CV events. Sodium-based paracetamol showed a positive association with all-cause mortality, relative risk 1.46. However, after further accounting for other sources of residual confounding, the observed association attenuated towards the null, relative risk 1.08. Exploratory analyses revealed dysphagia and related conditions as major sources of uncontrolled confounding by indication for this association. Rao and colleagues conclude that their study does not support previous suggestions of increased systolic BP and elevated risk of CV events from short-term use of sodium bicarbonate paracetamol in routine clinical practice. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Athanasios Manoulis and Manoulis Kalistratos from the Metropolitan Hospital Athens in Greece. The authors conclude by noting that we have conflicting results regarding the effects of formulations containing sodium on BP levels and or CV events. Therefore, caution is needed regarding the long-term prescription of these formulations, while these patients should be closely monitored for the emergence of hypertension or fluid retention.
Ideally, the patient should be informed of the possibility of these formulations to increase BP levels and or fluid retention and of the fact that we have conflicting results regarding the effects mentioned previously. In a clinical research article entitled Smoking and Cardiovascular Outcomes After Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, a Korean study, Yul Chong Ki and colleagues from the Yui Chongbo Yulchi Medical Center in the Republic of Korea investigated the impact of smoking and its cessation after percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, on CV outcomes. Using a nationwide database from the Korean National Health Insurance System, approximately 74,000 patients undergoing PCI between 2009 and 2016 were classified as non, ex, or current smokers, depending on smoking status at the first health checkup within one year after PCI. The primary outcome was a major adverse CV and cerebrovascular event, or MACE, a composite of all-cause death, myocardial infarction, coronary revascularization, and stroke. During four years of follow-up, current smokers had a 19.8% higher rate of MACE than non-smokers, AHR 1.198, and ex-smokers tended to have a rate comparable with that of non-smokers. For approximately 32,000 patients with both pre- and post-PCI health checkup data, the effects of smoking cessation were analysed. Among quitters who had stopped smoking after PCI, quitters with cumulative smoking exposure of less than 20 pack years, or PYs, tended to have a rate of MACE comparable with that of persistent non-smokers. However, the rate in quitters with cumulative exposure of greater than or equal to 20 pack years was comparable with that of persistent smokers, compared with persistent non-smokers, P for interaction being less than 0.001. He and colleagues conclude that smoking is associated with a higher risk of adverse outcomes in patients undergoing PCI. Quitters after PCI with less than 20 pack years are associated with a risk comparable with that of non-smokers. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Xavier Garcia Mor from the Hospital de la Santa Creo y San Pau in Barcelona, Spain. Garcia Mor notes that it's relevant to highlight that from all the patients in this study, only 24% underwent a regular health checkup, and that 21% of patients that underwent PCI and had a second health checkup asking about smoking status kept smoking after the procedure. These facts underscore the need for cardiac rehabilitation units, or CRUs, and the relevance of a well-developed primary care network. CRUs remain one of the most cost-effective treatments in cardiology, with a Class I recommendation level of evidence A in the recent main European Society of Cardiology guidelines. Also, whenever possible, designing follow-up protocols together with primary care physicians could help to ensure a proper follow-up of these patients. As a global problem, effective health policies are needed, needed to be issued, but also needed to be implemented, with a good control of these results to close the full circle of quality, as has already been done in some countries that have led the race against smoking. 
Also, of course, let us not be pessimistic or nihilistic about recommending smoking cessation to heavy smokers. An increased risk of aortic aneurysm and aortic dissection, or AA stroke AD, has been reported with fluoroquinolone, or FQ, use. However, recent studies suggested confounding factors by indication. In a clinical research article entitled Lack of Association Between Fluoroquinolone and Aortic Aneurysm and Dissection, Kong Men Ho and colleagues from the Song Kyung Hwan University School of Medicine in Korea aim to investigate the risk of AA stroke AD associated with fluoroquinolone use. This nationwide population based study included adults aged greater than or equal to 20 years who received a prescription for oral fluoroquinolone or third-generation cephalosporin or 3GC during outpatient visit from 2005 to 2016. The primary outcome was hospitalization or in-hospital death with a primary diagnosis of AA stroke AD. A self-controlled case series and a Cox proportional hazards model were used. Self-controlled case series compared the incidence of the primary outcome in the risk period versus the control periods. A total of approximately 954,000 patients were included. The overall incidence of AA stroke AD among patients who received fluoroquinolin and 3GC was 5.40 and 8.47 for 100,000 person years. There was no significant difference in the risk between the two groups, AHR 0.752, in the inverse probability of the treatment-weighted Cox proportional hazards model. Subgroup and sensitivity analysis showed consistent results. The authors conclude that there is no significant difference in the risk of AA stroke AD in patients who are administered oral fluoroquinolone compared with those administered a 3GC. The study findings suggest that the use of fluoroquinolone should not be discouraged when clinically indicated. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Stefan Agarwal from the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden, and Juan Tomargo from the Universidad Complutense in Madrid, Spain. The authors note that the present study presents several strengths. First, the authors used the Korean nationwide health reimbursement data with a forward design which allowed examination of the incidence of the primary outcome measures. Second, they applied several strategies to minimize the effect of interpersonal variability in baseline characteristics, improve the robustness of the study, and mitigate residual bias. Lastly, a sensitivity analysis was conducted with multiple alternative outcome measures. These findings strongly suggest that fluoroquinolone use should not be discouraged stroke stopped when clinically indicated because the optimal treatment of infectious diseases clearly outweighs the small absolute risk of AA stroke AD. Further research, however, is needed to clarify the role of fluoroquinolones in the development of AA stroke AD in patients with a prior history of vascular events. The issue is also complemented by a discussion forum contribution. In a commentary entitled Limited Resource, Limited Guideline, 
towards the delivery of appropriate and contextual cardiovascular care across settings. Dominique Fairfort and colleagues from the University of Toronto in Canada comment on the recent publication Applicability of European Society of Cardiology Guidelines According to Gross National Income by Walter B. van Dijk from the Utrecht University in the Netherlands. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.